Coming up on this week's show, more in television Amico drama. A new faster way to play PS2 games. And we go inside the world of competitive gaming with Capcom and Tengen's Chris Tang. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out their latest book, Go Straight, The Ultimate Guide to Side-Scrolling Beat-Em-Ups. Get ready for the fight of your life and taking you behind the scenes on legendary games like Double Dragon, Golden Axe, Final Fight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and some more obscure brawlers that you need to try as well. Pre-orders are available right now for shipping on February 25th. You can find out more and the rest of their retro games books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 314, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every week takes you behind the scenes of classic video games, reminiscing about those golden video games consoles, you know, the 8-bit, the 16-bit, the early 32-bit systems, even... 64-bit. Yeah, I know 64-bit sounds quite modern, but Atari were doing that with the Jaguar back in 1993. Do the math, Dan. Do the math. Let's not get into into that debate right now. But that's what we do. I mean, we we reminisce about, you know, that the systems that we played growing up, the companies as well. We get the developers on, the guys that used to run the companies, all sorts, everything to do with vintage video games. And actually, this week, we're going to be going behind the scenes of competitive gaming. Now, obviously, at the moment, eSports is a huge deal. I think probably even more so since the pandemic. But competitive gaming has been a thing since the earliest days of video games. We knew they were doing it back in the days with Pac-Man and stuff like that. But uh, we're going to be going into the 90s with this one and uh, talking to an absolutely amazing guest who worked with Capcom and TenGen as well, which are companies that we've not really covered before. But uh, I tell you, Joe is in his absolute element in this interview. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we spoke to Chris Tang, um, who has just had an absolutely amazing career. And as you say, he started off kind of like in the early days of esports. You know, he was out there winning all these big competitions when he was like 12, 13 years old. And then he actually ended up landing a job with Tengen and Atari and then ended up working at Capcom. So as Ravi says, I was in my element because we finally kind of got somebody who had their foot in the door with not just Capcom, but with Capcom of Japan. And, you know, he worked on some massive games like Marvel vs. Capcom, Street Fighter Third Strike, you know, and he also worked on like some of the smaller games like Gauntlet 4. And we also kind of got like his side of the story on Primal Rage 2 because he actually worked on Primal Rage and then went into Primal Rage 2, which, you know, that's a huge story that, you know, never came out. And uh, it was just really awesome just to kind of hear his side of things. And, you know, it was quite a sad story, but it kind of came full circle and it was quite nice in the end. So definitely one of my favourite interviews we've ever done. I absolutely loved it and just was in my element talking about fighting games for like an hour. It's great because he offers a unique perspective because he comes from um, Hawaii. So he's kind of positioned between Japan and America. And um, he was also in this insane gaming competition that was actually held by Sega on Alcatraz. Mm. Um, so yeah, actually, actually played that, and uh, he was he was in the Nintendo World Championship. So he had one of those uh, World Championship carts as well. Yeah, awesome you know story. what? Whenever whenever I see like um, footage from video game competitions back then, obviously Nintendo World Championships was a big one. But I mean, we had you know what's a day on here from Twin Galaxies. You know, obviously this King of Con stuff like that, and it blows me away 
the skills that those players had back then. I mean, this is before the days where you could jump on YouTube and watch a, a speed run and copy it. Yeah, and, you know, this one, the, the Alcatraz, the rock on the rock was actually, um, you know, broadcast on MTV as well. Mm. So, so it wasn't on your Twitch or any kind of online streaming services like that. You know, it was, it was direct to your TV and uh, it shows how big it was. You know, um, I think Sega gave away £25,000 and he won that. Don't you wish you were good enough at gaming to take part in competition? I, I, I know, never just, win that. To, <laughs> just to win like twenty five grand just from being amazing at Sonic. They'd probably take money away from me. <laughs> you, know, you know, we've been to like, um, you know, Play Expo and that kind of thing before. I think you've actually taken part in a couple of uh, competitions, haven't you, Joe? I've seen you up there. And- <laughs> yeah, I, I randomly entered a Dragon Ball Z Fighters competition, you know, and I love Dragon Ball Z, but I've never played this game. Um, and it was like the week it came out on PS4. And I came like eighth. <laughs> it's like insane. Like Out of eight people, yeah? Yeah, out of eight people. No, it was out of like a good, like, couple of hundred people, like, you know, uh, me and our friend Alex, who's a friend of the show, entered. And you had to pay to enter. And we thought, oh, this would be really funny. And I felt really bad because Alex got knocked out in the first round. And then I won, like, my first three rounds. And the top prize was, like, 500 quid and a PS4. And I was, like, started to think, like, oh, man, what if I actually win this? You know, like, if I actually win, like, 500 quid, that'd be amazing. But then I got absolutely battered <laughs> like, the fourth <laughs> round. Didn't even land a hit on, like, the guy I played um but yeah man like that for me was amazing and that was just like a couple of hundred people so it was so cool kind of hearing you know chris's point of view like you say he was on rock the rock at alcatraz and at you know the nintendo world championship in 1990 so really really fun stories yeah it's gonna be great to hear some kind of background on you know these events are now legendary aren't Mm. they they've gone down in like gaming law now so uh chris tang our special guest Joe and Ravi are going to be catching up with him on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, we bring you a guest on the show every week, but also we bring you up to date on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology. Some big stories to get into in just a moment. But, you know, we don't want to give it the hard sell at the start of the show, but I just want to quickly remind you that the reason we can bring you this podcast every week is thanks to our incredible supporters on Patreon. I was actually chatting to someone on Discord the other day, and they were telling me that they listen to the podcast every week, and they were like... Uh, I thought I should get involved in this Patreon thing, but I don't really know what it is, if I'm honest. And it, it kind of struck me that maybe we've not really explained this well enough for a lot of people. What What is Patreon then, Ravi? It's it's kind of, it's patronage, uh, basically supporting the arts. You know, it's it's been around forever, but they've, they've actually created a platform for it. And um, the way that it works is, you know, you can pay a small fee and uh, you're actually helping support the podcast, keeping it going. And you get an ad-free episode of the podcast you get a special rss stream as well where you can have after hours episodes which we do uh extended interviews and uh you know lots more stuff like we have a a, a meetup with all our patrons where we actually meet up and video chat so you're you're basically helping support the podcast but you're also getting a load of bonus benefits from doing that yeah and i think we've been kind of hovering around 260 patrons for about three or four months now it kind of just keeps going over then drops under again which you know is the way these things go i mean you know obviously things come up and people kind of you know afford to keep paying every we completely understand that then new people come in i think at the time of recording this we're on 262 now which is incredible but obviously anything we get into patreon it really helps us out with the running of the show as well and just make sure that we can bring it out each and every friday for you and uh like ravi said you get the perks you get it ad free you get the uh, the normal podcast early most weeks you get the exclusive 
patrons only podcast the after hours show uh, this week actually an ex- special extended episode another hour with Ian Gree from Cygnosis which is you know so many people have been asking for that so that's out now as an after hours episode and also we're going to be doing our patrons hangout that we do a big video chat everyone gets together and geeks out on the uh, last Sunday of the month that'll be coming up on the uh, 27th of February so if you want to get invited to that and of course have the satisfaction of knowing that you support this show and ensure that it comes out each and every week you can join us on patreon at theretrohour.com all the details are on there and I want to say a big thank you to the three new patrons that have signed up this week a huge thank you to uh, nicholas lundberg leismark luke ireland and tony bowes who all join us on patreon this week we hugely appreciate your support and if you'd like to do the same you'll find it at theretrohour.com now one story that we need to talk about this week is uh, something that we first mentioned on this podcast i think it must be around three or four years ago that to say it's kind of been filled with many twists and turns and uh, drama over the last four years would be understating it slightly, but this is the Intellivision Amico. Now, this is a system, just to kind of recap it, it was um, Tommy Tallarico was really the main guy behind this. And uh, it was kind of a project to kind of bring back the couch gaming era of video game systems. Obviously, in television was a big name in the earliest days of consoles. And uh, they've been saying that what they want to do is get, you know, get kids off Xbox Live and get them off playing the Switch online, get them to sit down with the family and bring back couch gaming. That was the aim of it. But now, in 2022, two years after the system was first promised to be launched back in 2020, there is still no sign of it. And there have been some, uh, I've got to say, now, if I was a backer of this project, maybe some quite worrying updates that have come out over the last couple of weeks, and, uh, including this article that I link up in Nintendo Life that now claims the Intellivision Amico may never see the light of day. Yeah, we've kind of decided not to cover it massively on this podcast because it was just kind of, as I said, drama and a little bit back and forth. But this seems to be really kind of significant news. Um you know, it it looks like a good, good fun system for Intellivision fans and uh, co-op people. And also Tommy Tallarico is a, a real legend in the video ge- game world. You know, he's created a lot of music and a lot of fantastic games. But it seems like he's now um, stepped down and been replaced as the, the CEO. And he was very much the kind of evangelical head of the uh, Amico um, Intellivision. And he was kind of really pushing it and doing lots of interviews out there about it uh so it, it seems kind of a bit bad what, what what's going on well the latest thing is I mean, like you said tommy in the last month has been replaced as ceo um by a guy called phil adam who was a revenue officer before now i've got to say i mean i was looking at tommy's um twitter feed before and it turns out his father is seriously ill at the moment so that could be a big reason as to why you know he doesn't want to be doing the day-to-day running and you know obviously our our best wishes with tommy and his family uh, but also there's being um one thing that you've got to do is you know this kind of companies have done an sec filing now this is where they kind of um obviously anyone that wants to open themselves up for investment they've got to kind of outlay the risks and everything of investing security in security like exchange commission is it Yes, which is an American body, I believe. I mean, I'm not too up on uh, investment, but there are some points that actually, if you read this article on Nintendo Life, they've pulled out a few of the headlines from this filing where, you know, they've got to be transparent because obviously if you're asking for investment, you've got to lay the risks down. You've got to be honest about everything. Um, But one thing they've put out there that seems to be the headline of this is it is possible 
there may never be a fully operational Intellivision Amico, and it's possible that the failure to release the product is a result of a change in business model upon the company making a determination of that business model or some other factor which will not be in the best interest of the company and its stockholders or creditors. So it turns out, actually, that, you know, since they um, started this company back in 2018, they haven't actually generated any profit. And in fact, they reckon that there is $3.1 million in outstanding loans. So there's quite, you know, heavy debts there as well. And they've also raised around $17 million, you know, all these investment drives that they've been doing to design this console and market it as well and paying for the development of software for it too. And now they're actually looking for yet more investment. And uh, there is another crowdfunder running at the moment on a website called Star Engine, which is an investment site where they're aiming to get another $5 million. From memory, I believe this is their fifth investment round. And at the time of recording, they've only raised $58,000 on there. So, you know, quite a long way off the the 5 million mark, but it, it kind of doesn't look, I mean, I'm not an investor, like I said, but um, the fact this has been delayed three times now, we know the world's been difficult yeah, over the last yeah. couple of years, you know, with chip shortages and that kind of thing, but it doesn't look that promising, to, I've got to say. To, to be honest, coming from a, a background of Amiga computer and other, other systems, you do, you do kind of see a lot of this hype, and uh, I hate to use the word vaporware, but... Um, you know, if if it doesn't appear, then it is it is it is vaporware, and like, it's 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 really tough. You know, um, you can you can live off hype for a, a certain amount of time, but if you're not making profit for that long, and uh, you're not you're not kind of diversifying, I would think even even if they were just to offer like you know branding or or something else, if they couldn't have done that, um, I think it's a bit of a tough situation to be asking for the money again and uh, I, I don't know if they've kind of got enough support especially with Tommy not on board now um yeah it's a, it's a tough situation for the uh in television fans out there yeah because they did show some of the hardware at a um a gaming show in America last summer and if you look on YouTube there are actually a few videos of people actually playing some of the early games on there so the hardware does look like it's you know in some form actually out there. But then, like you said, you know, they're asking for um, another $5 million to kind of get this thing over the line. And if you look at the um, the little trailer they've put on here, it's pretty much identical to the one that they put out back in 2018. So, and even the, the game clips in there are the same ones that they put out like, you know, two or three years ago. So from looking at this, if you saw the original one, it doesn't look like it's come on all that far in the last few years. And let me play you a little bit of the trailer because it gives you more of their idea for what they want this system to be. Intellivision is bringing families back together again with an innovative gaming console called Amico. 40 years ago, video games burst onto the scene as families connected gaming consoles to their television sets and enjoyed playing simple games together. It didn't take long for video games to grow into a multi-billion dollar industry as the digital play from companies such as Atari, Coleco, and Intellivision became an integral part of childhood culture. But by the mid-90s, the video game industry took a turn. Easy-to-play games became sophisticated, controllers became complicated, and consoles became expensive. Sadly, family play was replaced by solo play, and rooms full of laughter were replaced by insulating headsets but all of that is about to change with the arrival of Amico. First thing I thought when I heard that is that they're basically saying that gaming has just been for hardcore gamers since the mid-90s. Yeah. Completely forgetting stuff like the Wii 
Yeah, you know, I, which I, is I like think the ultimate party console. They're, they're, they're forgetting casual gaming, and I've always think that's been the bit of the problem with it. I've never been able to kind of see the business model there. Um, mm. But it's it's interesting uh, to kind of see what they're doing. But even saying stuff like it's going to be cheaper, I've heard reports that they're going to actually have to increase the price of the unit now to, to, to make any profit at all if it does actually get this investment and if it does come out. Well, they're looking, um, someone's kind of gone through all the figures here as well, and there's a couple of comments on Nintendo Life. Someone's worked out that they're going to have to sell them for $200 to kind of break even. Yeah. Now, which, you know, you're kind of getting into like kind of switch category there, which I think, I mean, I, again, I agree with you. I've never seen the business model here. And we said the same thing about the Atari VCS console before it came out. And, you know, don't want to say I was right, but I think we probably Well, I predicted that. that the Switch would be a failure, so don't listen to me. Yeah, don't listen to Rabbit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, so, I mean, it looks like, uh, you know, based on the money they've got right now, if they don't get this, um, this $5 million, which will apparently keep them going for the next seven to nine months, if they only raise $10,000, they'll only have operating cash for another month, apparently. So uh, I've got to say... Um, it's not looking very positive for them, is it? But maybe it's for the best because, again, like you know, like with the Atari VCS, if this thing does come out, I'm just not convinced it's going to have a market. And you think, you know, guys like Tommy and that have got a long experience of the video game sector would probably be a bit more clued up on that. But yeah, I just can't see it personally. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it, though. It may surprise us if you want to read all about the uh, Intellivision Amico drama so far. I'll link up those articles and the current crowdfunder in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, PlayStation 2, obviously the biggest selling console in history. Um, I think we've all got a you know, PS2 somewhere in the cupboard. If not set up, I actually set my PS2 up again the other day as a DVD player in my, in my office, actually, I've got to say. Uh, but one of my PlayStation 2s, I've got a fat PS2 that's got the, uh, you know, the, the free boot mod on there. I've got a hard disk in the back, loads of games loaded on it too. But the problem always was that if you've got one of the slim model PlayStation 2s, Obviously, it was harder to hook up a hard disk and everything. And really, the main way that people could play, you know, modded games, if you like, your backups, was using the very slow USB port on there. But actually, there is a new solution. And um, there's a really cool video on here uh, by um, Macho Nacho Productions. Play PlayStation 2 games from a memory card. Now, this uses a new device called the MC2 SIO MC. X4SIO. So this is a little device that you plug into the memory card slot on a PlayStation 2, and then it's got a little SD card adapter that you pop in, and you can actually load games and play them from the memory card slot, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's absolutely awesome, because it's like when, when I was growing up, my, my friend Richard modded his PS2, but it was the fat PS2, and he had the hard drive in the back, and he did it all so we could play modded versions of Guitar Hero 2. Um, but it could also emulate, you know, snares and it could emulate PlayStation 2 games on it. But like you say, the, the slim model could never do that. And, you know, the option would be to plug the hard drive into the USB port. But it caused issues of like flickering on the FMVs and you'd have like major game slowdown. And it was all because of the USB port. Was a was it a USB 1.1? So it's yeah, very slow. a very slow one. So does this essentially upgrade the USB port? Is that essentially what's happening? It's making it so it works better? It- well, no, this completely bypasses. Oh, because it's so, through so, the memory so, card so you don't slot. use it at all. Which amazes me. Yeah, because I didn't know that actually the, the memory card slot was faster than USB. Yeah, that's wow. That's really so I, I, was, I thought it was going to be the memory card slot and the USB, but it's just the memory card slot, essentially. Yeah. That's insane. 
And does back. does it play games at like a decent rate? Because I, I remember I had one of these SD card adapters for the Dreamcast that would go via the serial port at the back. And um, there'd be a few glitches and like music wouldn't work and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen so far, I mean, this isn't actually out yet. Mm. So it, come, well, it comes out today, February 18th, um, Friday, February 18th, the day the show comes out. Um, there's a small initial batch coming out, but obviously there's this video that's around 20 minutes long kind of demonstrating that as well. But they're saying actually from from what I've seen of this video, the games seem to run quite well. Like you said, I mean, a lot better, Joe, than running off the USB ports. Yeah. I don't imagine it's probably not quite up to speed of, of you know, having a, a dedicated IDE hard disk in the FAT model. But, you know, considering this is running via a card slot that was just meant to load and save game data... Mm. Um, apparently, it's uh, you know it's a lot quicker than the USB ports on there. So um, the, the games that they're showing actually look pretty good. Now there is a Google Doc that they've got here with a list of compatible games that kind of details how well each game runs. You know they've either shaded them um, green, which means you know they're fully compatible. There's some that are amber that may have some issues, maybe glitching FMVs and that kind of thing. Some are red that just don't run at all. So, you know, compatibility is not 100%. But looking through this list already, bearing in mind this is a pre-launch list, I'd say there is probably around maybe 70% of games seem to run pretty much flawlessly on here. This is awesome. And, like, you're doing no modification on your machine physically. Yeah, it's all soft yeah. mod. And, like, you know, I I love to mod my machines and, you know, hack around with them, but... I'm such a noob when it comes to PlayStation. Like, I remember my mate getting one of the fat ones and showing me that there was a hard drive in the back. I was like, what? There's a hard drive in a PlayStation? I, <laughs> I, I didn't know for years that there was that big empty slot on the back of the big fat PlayStations. You know, and it wasn't until, like I say, that we started modding Qatar Aero and stuff like that, that it was like 2006, 2007. It was just like, oh, the back comes off and there's a big gap here for a hard drive. Is it, is it for storing biscuits? Yeah, is this, is this for my cookies? But apparently it was it was literally, you know, it never came out in the UK and America, the official PlayStation hard drive, because it was so easy to just put ROMs on there, mm. you know. And, yeah, because we had, because um, you know you needed the network adapter, mm. didn't you? Yeah. And we, we had one of those in our PlayStation 2. There's an Ethernet port on the back, but we never got it working. Yeah. Um, and then my brother gave me his LPS2 probably around like 12, 13 years ago. I tried to put a hard disk in it then, but it wasn't working. So it turned out the one that we got with our PS2 back in like 2000, 2001, turned out never worked at all. But I got like a third party one of eBay and that worked fine. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, I don't remember anyone really using that when the, the PlayStation 2 was in its prime. It really just seems to be, and probably the reason that they took it off, the later models, is because it was really just used as a piracy device mm. by most people. But this, I mean, the thing about it is as well, I mean, you've got to remember these systems are getting on for like, what, 20, 21 years old now. Uh, 22 years old, actually. And I know that a lot of the lasers on the original PlayStation 2s are getting a bit flaky now. You know, the older they get, that is probably the main part of the system that's going to fail. So having a device like this where, you know, you don't have to use your original DVDs and, you know, you don't have to wear out your lasers, having something that's pretty much a plug-and-play solution, playing your PS2 library from an SD card through the memory card slot, and it's very tidy. I mean, this is only the size of a memory card as well. It's not a messy solution. Yeah, I think, you know, from remembering back in the day, it was all wires and like you say, you had to have that network adapter in there and, you know, I think, I'm not too sure if you had to have an online connection on there. I can't, I don't think you did, but this, like you say, it's such a nice, neat solution and the fact that it works with the PlayStation 2 Slim is even neater. You know, it's just all very smooth, um, which is awesome. 
it's cheap as well like you look at everdrives and stuff and they're quite expensive this is like 20 dollars, and obviously it's sold out instantly <laughs> like it's gonna be a while yeah. till you can get these but 20 dollars is a real decent price for that yeah i've got a feeling anyone that's a, a playstation 2 gamer in 2022 is probably gonna have the hands in one of these before the end of the year fingers crossed you know it's going to be an essential purchase i think so if you want to read more about that i'll link that video up in our show notes as well now did you know that you could make video calls on your game boy advance you could have done this back in 2004 joe there's so much stuff coming out for the game boy and the game boy advance so it's not even coming out it's so much stuff that it's been discovered came out and is being discovered and there's such random little gadgets which came out you know in the 90s and 2000s and i absolutely love it and i love that this this video from our friend the retro future who we've had on before has found discovered in the deepest darkest part of the internet this japanese exclusive the camp how advance i believe it's called <laughs> yeah um, um it's it's really awesome um just to mm. say as well the retro futures just had his uh his motorbike wrecked and destroyed so um if you guys can help support him check that out as well because he's a really good guy um this this is quite mad it actually works on 3g um okay did any of you guys have a 3G video calling device? I actually had one. It was like one of these early LG phones. Uh, I don't recall, no. Like I had like, um, obviously, Nokia phones that had 3G on, but yeah, I don't remember ever doing video calls on them. Well, I, no. I had one, and another person in the city had one, and we were the only two people that could call each other. And it was just like, we'd call each other and go, look, I'm, I'm chatting to someone on video. And it was like really low quality. But just the novelty of being able to do a video call was absolutely amazing. And it's it's quite old technology, actually, 3G. And uh, uh, Elliot like does a call on this. And the quality of it is all right, you know, especially for the Game Boy Advance. I mean, it's 1.1 megapixel camera and it's five frames per second performance. So, you know, it, it's definitely better than the original Game Boy Game Boy camera. I'll give it that. Um, but yeah, it's def- for 2004, like you say, it, it's better than what you would expect. But essentially, this, this is a device that plugs into your Game Boy SP that did come out. It was an actual commercial, you know, piece of technology that came out in Japan and they produced 10,000 units of it. But you, from what I understand, like you say, you have to plug it into your into your Game Boy Advance and then do you then you also have to plug it into a phone with 3G on it as yeah. well and then you have to plug it into anything else I feel like this I, and a power I supply, guess power kind of supply. Of, that was it yeah using the sim to, card of the phone um, yeah essentially to, to but, connect to the network but yeah. it isn't very portable if you're having to plug it into a power supply as well no so you've got it into your phone which like you say Ravi is probably using the sim card and then you've got it into your Game Boy Advance, and then it's plugged into a power supply. Also, you can make a video call in 2004, and it cost 19,000 yen, which was around about £164 or $220 back in Mm. 2004. So not the cheapest product. And like you say, Ravi, it was probably to call one other person who had it in the city. But but also, (laughs) like, you would have to plug it in because that is going to be a battery rinser, Mm. like... I, you, there'd be no way that that could run off battery. <laughs> totally not. See, video calling's got a kind of a, a difficult history, really. I remember seeing my first video phone 
um, and I've, I've just Googled this now, is a thing called the, um, the Relate 2000, the British Telecom, made back in around 1992, 93. And I remember going into the, the BT shop when British Telecom actually used to have shops with my dad and my brother, and they actually had two of these set up. Oh, wow in the shop at different ends of it. And you could like video call each other. And again, I mean, it was color from memory. Again, it was probably really slow. Like, you know, I think about three frames mm. a second um, and came out of, you know, either a little titty speaker on there. You had to hold the handset up. I remember thinking that was pretty cool, but I remember thinking even then, do I really want to see all my friends every yeah, time I call I, them? Cause I mean, I don't know about you guys. I, I use video calling now on stuff like, you know, teams and, zoom and that you know for work yeah that's it literally work like when i saw it in star trek i was like right i'm going to use this all the time you know this is the future but only during the pandemic when you couldn't see people i was using it for social reasons and like pub quizzes and stuff like that but um yeah now literally the only video call and stuff that i do is, is just for work you know just meet someone see them and it's it's kind of got this formality about it hasn't it uh video calling well, you have to, you know, you have to brush your hair and so I, I think, you know, video calling has always been something that we think we want. I don't know. I see like, you know, if, if I'm out and about often kind of, you know, at the risk of sound like a real old fart, the younger generation, the youth. I often see te- teenagers and stuff on FaceTime and that walking around, you know, trying not to bang into lampposts and that kind of thing. So maybe it's something that, you know, kids do more these days. I don't know. But it's, uh, yeah, in terms of video calls, it's just not really something that I feel has kind of taken off as much as they all said it would, you know, back in the 90s and 2000s, that, you know, no one would make audio calls anymore and everything would be video Maybe chat. we're the generation that need to wear a suit and sit there and look prim and proper and everyone else just doesn't care. <laughs> in front of your Game Boy Advance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next time I have a Teams meeting at work, I'll be like, I'm, co- I'm calling you from my Game Boy Advance, guys. Bear with me. <laughs> so, yeah, it is a cool little device. I always love seeing kind of fail tech as well and stuff that, you know, uh, could have changed the world if it took off back then. So that's a really cool video that Elliot's made. Um, and you'll find that in our show notes as well. Now, plenty more stories to talk about, including we're going to be talking about uh, an MS-DOS game that was made in QBasic that I used to play at school, actually, and Ravi's found a great little article about that. And uh, the coolest Apple Watch retro stand you've ever seen. More about that in a moment. But before we do, let's take a second to give a big thank you to one of our incredible supporters. And this is our friends at Future Publishing, who are, of course behind the incredible Retro Gamer magazine. Now, of course, if you listen to our podcast each week, you need to be reading Retro Gamer, the magazine that comes out every month, and uh, all the stuff we talk about, you know, they give you all that and lots more as well. And not only do Future Publishing uh, talk about the classic gaming as well, but also they focus on the current generation of consoles and PC gaming as well, with a range of gaming magazines that they've got, including uh, the published PC Gamer magazine. Yeah, I love PC Gamer, and I also love Edge as well, because that's that's... Super cool, but uh, PC Gamer at the moment, they're, they're covering Homeworld Free. That that was a classic title, Homeworld. And also the, uh, the new Steam Deck, which uh, seems to be coming out. And Edge are covering Somerville, which looks like a really awesome indie game coming out. Yeah, and also they do um, Play Magazine as well, if you're a PlayStation fan. I know you're pretty hyped for uh, Final Fantasy Origin. There's the uh, cover feature about that this month. Yeah, they've got Final Fantasy Origin on the front of Play Magazine there, and they're also going to be covering the PlayStation VR 2, which there's a lot of hype about at the moment. So not just retro stuff, which is really cool. But of course, they do Retro Gamer magazine. Mm. Um, the current issue that you'll find in the shop's got pilot wings on the front cover. I've actually got um, the next issue that comes out um, all about Earthworm Jim as well. Obviously, you know, one of the best platformer games back in the day. Always loved Earthworm Jim. I mean, it's just a character with so much attitude. It was like, like playing a, a cartoon character, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. 
So we go um, really in depth into uh, the backstory, Dave Perry and Nick Brucey, Tommy Tallarico, talking about um, Earthworm Jim's evolution over the last few decades. There's actually a six-page feature in here as well with um, AVGN, James Rolfe, kind of going behind the scenes on uh, probably the most famous you know, YouTube gaming series out there. Um, Attack of the Mutant Camels is a... Uh, Something here about the uh, the network adapter. You know, we're talking about PlayStation Two games. I've actually got a feature on playing PS Two games with the network adapter online. The making of Crash Bandicoot and Spyro. And looking at the PlayStation Three, which you know, I guess is now considered retro. Um, the ultimate guide to pinball dreams. The making of Dark Seed as well. So you'll find all that kind of stuff every month in Retro Gamer Magazine. And we want you to try out some of Future Publishing's incredible gaming magazines for yourself. And of course, by taking up this amazing offer you'll be really helping out the podcast as well. And I will say, take advantage of this offer now. Because it only comes up a couple of times a year, and we get so many tweets after the fact, people going, oh, I missed out, is it still on? So you can get three issues for just one pound of your favourite future publishing gaming magazine with our exclusive offer, which is just for Retro Hour listeners. All you've got to do is head to our link, magazinesdirect.com slash retro hour. So that's magazinesdirect.com dot com slash retro hour and i've worked this out that's a saving of around 95 percent insane on the cover price isn't it for just one pound three issues of retro gamer edge play or pc gamer uk magazines direct.com slash retro hour and of course a big thank you to our friends at future publishing for their continued support of our show now you and i are both rocking the uh, the apple watch revy you know we get constantly nagged throughout the day every time a message comes in and you know you don't look at it on your phone there it is on your wrist little reminder that you need to stand up. You haven't done that for around 45 minutes. Sometimes it tells me to breathe. It tells me to wash my hands, and it tells me how long yeah. I should do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it sounds like you guys have got your bloody mums on your wrists there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does feel like that. But, you know, actually, sometimes you get a bit of a break from it because you can take it off at night. Ah. But you need something nice to put it on on your bedside table. And at the moment, I mean, because the Apple Watch comes with this little kind of flimsy magnet that you just kind of clip onto the back of it, and often it doesn't and really it hold it. And it doesn't look very nice on your table, no. and it just, just slides around, and you just chuck it on there, yeah. Well, Ravi's been looking for um, kind of retro-inspired Apple Watch stands, and he found one that is actually a classic Macintosh. Yeah, well, there's this company called uh, Elego, and um, they seem to be making these like little rubber kind of stands that look absolutely wicked they've done a, a classic mag which is one that i absolutely love and you, you you put the charger in the back and then the apple watch screen is displayed on on the classic mac but they've also got a whole range of them so they've got um like game boy ones as well and uh you know, this isn't sponsored or anything. I just love this company. They've um, <laughs> they've got like a TV case as well for your Apple TV, uh, which is a, a SNES, and uh, like they've got the 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 iWatch. Uh, you know, the i iMac. They've got one like that as well, and I think um, the price range is really good on these. So it's like fourteen dollars. Um, oh wow! At the moment, so this is. Really cheap, like little, nice, classy kind of thing that you can have at the side. And I'm definitely going to get one. Uh, I kind of like having the, the classic Mac there as well because it's a, it's, it's a bit like the Mac legacy. You know, you've got your Apple Watch and then you've got your old school like little Mac there. And it's it's just a dock that, that fits the charger in and uh, it, it just looks so well done. What do you think, guys? I think it looks cool because I'm looking at the Game Boy one and you're right, the actual screen of the Apple Watch goes where the screen of the Game Boy would be. 
So you see your Apple Watch's screen through that kind of cutout for it, which I think is quite nice. Again, I mean, it's just a bit of rubber. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> a little bit of silicon, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do like the look of it. And you're right, cause, I mean, that is kind of one thing that... So I remember, you know, when the original iPhone came out and stuff, you remember you used to get like a dock with it. And you did the original iPods and stuff as well then. Gradually, I mean, I've got like an iPhone 13 now. You don't even get a charger in the box anymore. No. You just get like a, a USB cable and it's like, you know, they don't give you all this stuff. And trying to connect all your devices at night when you go to bed and having them laid out all over the table, it just get a bit messy. And you know Apple stuff is expensive. Like, you're not going to be able to yeah. get anything for $15 that's going to, like, look decent or, you know, uh, kind of help with it. But uh, these are fantastic. We'll leave we'll leave a link in the show notes and... Uh, you know, I'm going to get one of these, and I, I, I just think they're really nice. And uh, check out this company, Elago. Yeah, and any way to uh, sneak a bit of retro into the bedroom, you know, <laughs> quite cool, isn't it? Now, before we get into our chat this week, talking all about, you know, the history of competitive gaming with Chris Tang, he's coming up in a second. Um, this is a cool little article you found, Ravi, on uh, howtogeek.com. This is by uh, Benj Edwards, um, who does some great articles. He, podcaster in america as well you know, there's a lot of retro gaming and retro technology podcasts too this is all about a game that i used to play at school and actually i'd forgotten about this now this was a game that was um, included with ms dos in q basic a game called gorilla you see i never knew about this one like uh this looks blooming awesome uh it was actually like a hidden game and we love these like secret games in there so 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 what was it dan q basic is a, a programming language right yeah, so this was in um, MS-DOS. Uh, so I mean, I remember, I think we first started getting Windows PCs, probably around 92, 93 at school. I mean, we were still mainly Acorn Archimedes then, but we had a few like Windows 3.1 machines, including one in the library that I used to play with sometimes. And uh, yeah, QBasic was on there. And the only way you could access this game is because it was written in, uh, in QBasic. So it was actually one of the included demos that you get in there. So you couldn't just run it directly from DOS. You had to load QBasic and then load up at gorilla.bass, it was called. But me and my friend Ricky, we used to play this so often, you know, during like wet lunch breaks or whatever, we go in the library and play with this. Really what it is, it's kind of a bit like a primitive version of something like uh, Scorched Earth or Worms. Okay. So you get two gorillas who stand on the top of a skyscraper. And uh, from memory, I think they're kind of randomly generated different heights of skyscrapers and then you get exploding bananas and you've got to kind of set the angle and throw them at each other to try and blow each other up it looks pretty dope actually i really need to play this and uh they're saying that there's a new version of it well there's a version of it now that you can actually play online on um, archive.org and uh, you know it, it, I'm, I'm glad that this has brought back some nostalgia for you can't you play everything on archive.org yeah man absolutely i must say you're wet lunch breaks looked a lot more entertaining than mine at school we just used to get given the uh the cubes that like attached to each other like the little plastic cubes that you did like with maths and we just got to play with them like we that sounds depressing yeah it's pretty depressing when you look back whereas you were playing a primitive version of worms throwing banana bombs at each other (laughs) so but you see back at back in the 90s when the teachers didn't know what you were doing yeah the the screen was faced away we they thought we were looking up library books or something on there yeah maybe (laughs) you know there's a lot of hidden games like i remember there was one in excel and stuff like that and there was like flight simulators and stuff but it was all about like knowing the commands so like you know obviously you guys would be in the knowledge but uh there'd be other people playing other weird stuff i remember the first time i went up and i loaded up that uh, flight simulator that was in uh i think it was in excel people were yeah. just like what i can play a game on excel okay <laughs> you know it'd be like right abandon all kind of 
office or or spreadsheet stuff that I was doing and just play this all day. You're right because yeah, there was this game, yeah, the gorilla game on there. And there's another one in QBasic called Nibbles, which um, is actually in this article a bit further down. It was kind of like a snake clone. Oh, nice. Um, and we used to play those a lot. And I remember a few other kids would see them and they'd be like, oh, you know, load the up game up for it because no one knew how to load it up. Yeah. You know, to go via QBasic, and I was the only one that figured it out. Uh, but then in you know in our main computer classes when we had the the Aircon Archimedes, we played Lander. Um, obviously, you know, the, the David Braben game, Virus, it, you know, it was um, launched as, I think, yeah, that that was included on the demo disc on the Econ Archimedes. We'd often play that in class when, like, the teacher wasn't looking. And then I, I remember someone found, I think it might have been like a shareware version of Doom that someone had put on the network. I don't remember just kind of playing that and getting told off. You know, the one but, you know, I, there I were used to... Certain times people would sneak in discs or whatever. It was always good. The one I used to load up was, um, it was a Star Wars uh, that was done in ASCII. And, oh, I, right, and yeah, I think yeah, you'd load it up on Telnet and then people would sit there watching an ASCII version of Star Wars like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so, But I mean, obviously you can just play these games so easily now so you don't have to uh, go you know, hacking into BASIC on MS-DOS 5 to uh, play Gorillas now. You can do it straight in your web browser. So if you want to check that out again, very nostalgic looking back. I'll put that and all of our stories, you'll find them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, Chris Tang is coming up in just a second. Let's quickly give a thank you to uh, another big sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our friends at ExpressVPN. Now, we've talked before, Ravi, about how important it is, and increasingly so all the time, to have a VPN to protect your online privacy. But the most important thing, we think, is actually having a VPN that you trust as well, because there are so many out there, and, you know, often free ones that actually sell your data. You know, that's the reason that they're free. And uh, obviously, we do research on our sponsors as well, and we only recommend brands that we really trust. And you've been a user, even before ExpressVPN were a sponsor of this podcast, You've always rated them as the best VPN on the market. Oh, yeah. The ExpressVPN is just so fast. <laughs> like, uh, the streaming quality is, like, amazing. I Honestly, I forget that it's on quite a lot of the time. I've got it so it automatically starts on my computer, but you can have it set up on your phone so you can do that. And uh, I really trust it as well, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's really fantastic. Like, it's so lightweight, you know. When I've actually uh, loaded up the applications and stuff, that sometimes I've... I've had other ones slow down and there's been a bit of lag and stuff, but this is just like absolutely fantastic, blazing fast. Well, they've got a technology called a trusted server that makes their VPN servers pretty much incapable of storing any data at all. So you know they're not storing stuff, they're not tracking you or anything like that. And they've also got something called Lightway as well, which is a new VPN protocol they've engineered to make user speeds faster than ever before. Because you're right, I mean, I've used some of the free VPNs before and, you know, you have it on in the background, you try and watch a YouTube video. And you get the spinning wheel and stuttering and play. Yeah, all the time. With ExpressVPN, stream videos in HD, no buffering, anything like that. So that's the thing that really sets it apart and, and how easy it is to use as well. You don't need any technical skills to set it up. Open the app, tap a button, you're connected. Even your grandparents could do this as well. And it's not just us saying that. Business Insider, The Verge, many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. So you can protect yourself with the VPN that we use and trust by using our exclusive link and, of course, help out the podcast by showing some love to our sponsors, Express vpn.com slash retro use that today and you will get three months free on a one-year package that's an extra three months completely free of expressvpn by using our link expressvpn.com slash retro and a big thank you to our mates at expressvpn for their continued support of our show 
Right then, next, time to get some inside stories about classic competitive gaming and going behind the scenes on companies like Capcom and Tengen as well with our special guest, Chris Tang, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and I'm here today with Chris Tang. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. After getting my uh, computer up and running, I'm just uh, all ready to be interviewed by you guys. Awesome. Well, we've got a question that we always ask our guests, and that was, what was your first video gaming experience or memory? I was really small, um, probably just a few years old, and um, it's probably Pac-Man. I probably saw it at some kind of public place. I remember, um, especially... Uh, I grew up in Hawaii, and we had department stores, and we had other, um, like a drugstore. I think a block away from where I lived, there was a Long's Drugs. I think the chain is not in business anymore, but yeah, it's been taken over by CES, CVS or uh, Rite Aid or one of those companies. But in Hawaii, it's still called Long's Drugs because over there, they still kind of respect when a brand's been around long enough, they keep the local names there. Uh, so it's still called Long's Drugs in Hawaii, but they always had two arcade machines back to back by the checkout counters. So every time my mom uh, would take me to the store, I would see these arcade games and I walk up to it and I would just be mesmerized by the lights. So I'm pretty sure it was like Pac-Man or one of those uh, early 80s games that I first saw. And, uh, you know, I would uh, eventually get like a quarter, pop it in and I wouldn't be very good at it. But uh, I had a lot of fun uh, playing arcade games, and arcade games just really uh, entranced me uh, when I was little. And uh, I would play those games, and then um, eventually, you know, consoles would come out. I think my cousins had like a 2600. They were kind of mean to me. They didn't let me play very much. So I ended up uh, getting, eventually I got like a ColecoVision that my dad got me when I was uh, still very little, and that was my first console. Was um, Hawaii then? What was it a bit kind of behind with the releases in in the states and uh, oh, the Japanese okay. so absolutely gaming stores? It oh, was really? ahead of the curve. It is halfway oh, wow. between oh, wow. Japan and the U.S. So uh, I would see Japanese arcade games uh, like everywhere, and uh, the kids at school that I hung out with, they were all getting stuff from their relatives in, in Asia. Like they had, they'd have. Um, you know, relatives in like Hong Kong or Japan. And I would go to their house and, you know, that's where I saw Famicom for the first time. And this is how I found, like, found out about import gaming. And there were games that I was, you know, I had no idea either existed, uh, such as uh, Gradius 2 and Super Mario Brothers 3. I had those games uh, months and months before uh, they were, they, they were released in the U.S., and I even found out that some of them were different. Like I found out later on when they eventually did bring out uh, Super Mario 3 to the Western world, they dumbed it down and I was offended. I'm like, what do they think we are? Are we, Do they think we're bad at games and that, you know, Mario has to take an extra hit because because we're, we're we suck <laughs> or something? I was offended. I was like, well, what's up with this? And uh, but import gaming was like a, this huge new world of games to me. And uh, I would uh, go to the Japanese bookstores that we had locally and I would... Uh, uh, try to decipher, you know, I kind of learned hiragana and katakana on my own just because I was so uh, interested in video game magazines. And I think reading, uh, reading video game books, reading video game magazines, even when I couldn't play them, made me much more interested in it. Like there's a electronic games magazine and a computer games magazine. And I would find these books like how to win at video games. And even though I wasn't 
playing them, you know, right there in front of me, I would just be flipping through these and I'd be studying them. And little did I know that, you know, that kind of literacy was not just helping me, you know, learn how to read, but it was also teaching me important things about the video game industry that that would come in handy later. So uh, living in Hawaii really, I think, uh, helped in that it was this cultural bridge between Japan and the U.S. And uh, so many of the innovations that were coming out in video games seemed to hit where I was uh, sooner than other places. Uh, it was uh, full of uh, electronics and technology and uh, um, yeah, businessmen coming from Japan and, and uh, um, just kind of like the stuff was getting around and I, I couldn't, uh, it couldn't hide from me. You know, I would just, uh, there'd be like this one main shopping section uh, near Waikiki and it would have like all the latest stuff, you know, all the Sony camcorders and VCRs and electronics and the electronics section would be extremely robust and have all, you know, the game systems and, and uh, games out on display. And uh, I was always exposed to it. Did you have many arcades there? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Hawaii was a very good place for uh, video games. I remember um, when I was in uh, grade school, the my elementary school was across the street from one of the best arcades I've ever been in, been to in my life. It was called Kaimuki Q, which is what you'd probably think would be this rundown, uh, dilapidated place. You know, it, uh, it allowed smoking. Most of the people there were these really old dudes who would uh, go into this back room and I don't even know what they did back there. I think they did some kind of gambling or something back there, but it looked kind of seedy, but they had, you know, all the latest uh, arcade games uh, and as well as uh, the imports from Japan that I mentioned and, and just stuff that I didn't see anywhere else. So that, that was like an arcade that I, I, you know, I would sneak up, I would sneak there before I'd go to school. I'd go there and I'd play games and then I would go to school afterwards. And I remember, um, the first time I saw there are two games that really affected me that uh, became my favorite. And uh, that mm-hmm. was uh, uh, Gradius and Life Force. I saw yeah. there like for the first time. And, you know, when I first saw Life Force in it, it had all that speech and the scroll speed was just so fast and exciting. I was just completely hooked. And those uh, memories really stuck with me that uh, I would see games there released on a weekly basis, daily, almost like a daily basis. Uh, that would excite me, and I just couldn't wait to see what was uh, going to show up there next. So uh, I heard online that your parents weren't a fan of you playing so many video games, and they turn around, and the story goes, I've heard, they said, if you want to play video games, you've got to earn money from it, you've got to make a living from it. Is this true, and was that kind of like the catalyst to kind of get you going with your career? Well, I wouldn't exactly say um, they said I had to make money with it. I think that was okay. more from my side, uh, that... They just uh, thought it was okay. So they said literally it was a waste of time and money. And I'm I'm rebellious. Like if somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm gonna find a way to to uh, <laughs> find a way to contradict that. And uh, I guess well, there's a TV show called Starcade. They had they would have teens and kids and adults, whatever, uh, playing arcade games, and they'd win you know cash and prizes on a game show. And uh, they would play the latest arcade game. So I was, of course, already watching it because I was mesmerized by it. And uh, I wanted to be on that show someday. But I lived in Hawaii and, you know, and it was, you know, in the continental U.S. And, I, you know, I didn't live anywhere near there. But I figured, um, you know, I'd just play games, try to be good at them. And uh, I guess eventually after that arcade era, the NES, you know, the 8-bit era hit and it became big. And uh, they eventually had a... 
a contest that was in my area held at the local department store called Holiday Mart. It's actually a branch of uh, the big chain store Dae in Japan. Like I said, there's this bridge between Japan and the U.S. through Hawaii. Uh, so, yeah, they, they had a big island-wide. It was statewide, actually. I think they had uh, stores on other islands. And uh, they had a competition. And uh, it was on Super Mario Brothers. If you uh, got the furthest with the most score and coins, then you'd be the winner. And I guess they had a whole bunch of cool cash and prizes. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm good enough to do this. I, I think by the time that contest came around, I got to the point where I kind of knew I was good just because I'd go to the arcade, I'd play games and people would actually crowd around the machine and watch because, you know, I'd, I'd get high scores and sort of things like that. And, you know, I kind of saw that dynamic. I saw, you know, when I saw a good player, I knew what it looked like when they played. And I just kind of pushed myself to try to be as good as them because I was always assuming that there was someone better than me. Uh, so I was always overcompensating to try to be better than this invisible thing they didn't know. So I entered that contest and then I won. And not only did I win, but uh, so the goal was to get as far as you can in the game. So it went by world and then by score. And that actually was a really good rule set. It's probably one of the best rule sets I've ever seen for video game tournament uh, because it uh, forced the player to kind of uh, manage their risk reward. Like you go farther or you go for points, but you want to go farthest. So I was the only one in the whole competition you know, during its two weeks that it was running, uh, like there is like a preliminaries and the finals. I was the only one that as I, that was able to beat the game. Oh, so wow. I, at that point, <laughs> I was beating the game with the highest score possible. I think I was getting around 300k points, depending on how much risk uh, I did, because you know, you have to get the points along the way. Yeah. If you assume that everybody's going to beat the game, which I was, and then you're then you have to maximize that to secure the win. That's why I love that rule set. So I was the only one in the whole competition that was beating the game. And uh, for and, me, and, this you, was, and you probably thought, oh, I've got to get a high score because everybody else right. is beating the game. As I'm well. like, well, <laughs> everybody else, how much are they getting? They're probably getting like 300, 500,000. I better, you know, really push myself. So uh, I got it down to the point where, you know, I was basically speed running a game just like in, in the late 80s. So just having that dynamic, having that uh, sort of challenge in front of me, uh, uh, it's just kind of interesting to look at it, uh, seeing where things have, have gone since then. Once I won that, my parents' tune changed, and they were mm. very supportive of me from that point forward. <laughs> All I had to do was prove that it was possible and prove that you know I was good enough and motivated enough to have this uh, love for video games carry me through life, and it did. I, w- I was wondering, like, how, how did you prepare yourself for it? Like, there was a lot of competitive gamers before that would do patterns in pac-man and stuff like that and learn the kind of routines how did you get the knowledge to play these new titles well so the information back then was different there wasn't an internet i kind of just read books uh about games and kind of gleaned knowledge on how games work you know i knew there were bugs i knew about you know like the pac-man split screen if you roll over 255 bad things happen uh, that, that seemed to be a pattern that I would read about in all of these 80s books. Uh, I would play a game and then I would learn from it and uh, I would just try to do better and better. I would write down how long something took me. Oh, I also had a Betamax VCR. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. Betamax from the 80s. That, you know, my, my parents, <laughs> you know, my parents are Asian. They had Betamax. So they uh, I would record my games and I would play them back. And uh, the, this, you know, in the, in the mid 80s, I'm not sure how many people did that, but it was a valuable tool, and I just sort of learned as I went along. I, I found all sorts of crazy 
tricks and patterns on my own. Like I wouldn't read about these things. Like there's that um that trick with Mario where you stand at the edge of the stairs and you do a jump. Uh, and there's if there's a turtle shell there, you'll bounce on it and get a whole bunch of one ups. Like yeah, I found yeah. that in 1985. Like to go back a little bit further, I actually got one of those test market Nintendos from New York uh, in 1985. My dad just happened to be there, and he got me the one of those test market Nintendos. I had it before anybody else. Like no one in Hawaii had one of those, to my knowledge, when I got it. And I was just like, wow, this Super Mario Brothers is, is just you know arcade perfect or you know it it was better than anything i'd ever seen for a game system just blew me away and i had it really early i was playing it uh really early and i I loved the thing and i was familiar with the controls because i had those little gaben watches that nintendo made back in the day i'm like i know this control i know that that plus shaped uh control thing it was different from all the other consoles that came before but to me it was familiar and uh it helped me um learn the game and and uh i would find things in games like there's bugs that i found on games that to this day like people don't talk about them there's this weird one i found in ghosts and goblins i think ghosts and goblins was uh the first hard game that i played that you know people would consider to be a challenge but i blew through it and i was like you know i was just a kid and i thought every game was that hard or was going to be that hard so my standard for difficulty was set uh, very high at a very young age and there's um i guess third party games i i felt were harder than the nintendo ones and yeah i think ghosts and goblins was really a, a like a good training ground for uh, what was to come and my favorite games were the ones that ended up being harder and uh people would think i was crazy i'd be like they would say like man i've played this game Golgo 13 it's so hard there's no way you can beat it and i'm like dude i like beat that like no problem uh, i got to the <laughs> point where the kids in school were starting to pay me to advance their game in Zelda and Zelda <laughs> two. I think Zelda two was the one I got the most kids paying me to advance their game with. Uh, and that started my journey as a competitive or what do you call a professional game player where I was actually getting money and kids were letting me have and borrow their games. But that is just going off slight off topic there. That is just unlocked an early memory for me of doing that with metal gear solid for the PlayStation. Oh wow! My friends were giving me their memory cards and asking me to get them further in the game, but I was just copying saves and putting it on their memory card. Um, so I was doing <laughs> the exact same through. thing, but but it was probably yeah. a little bit easier for me. But um, that's amazing. So you were um, so you did that competition. You mm-hmm. were then uh, we read online that you were at the Nintendo World Championship in the early nineties. What what's the story there? Did you go straight from that little competition, or did you kind of build up to it? It started with that store chain in Hawaii uh, competition. That was the first one that I did. It was like an 88 or 89. And the Nintendo World Championships was in 1990. And uh, my family was moving uh, to California from Hawaii. And I was really upset at that, uh, to be honest, because I was just at that age where I was starting to get friends. And, you know, I I was getting kind of settled in and uh, I thought people were starting to like me. And the whole video game thing was really good. I just, wa- I was a state champion. This is like, I didn't want to, leave uh, the state that you know I had success in and, and you know go to California but uh, I guess you know I my older brother was going to college so you know kind of like a like a big thing the family was going through and I, I didn't really have a choice in the matter mm. so uh, after uh, the move was made uh, I tried to make the best of things and then I heard about you know through Nintendo Power that they were going to have this bigger contest and of course since I had experience and I by that time since I had won that Hawaii championship I kind of knew uh, I had a chance so uh uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got into it in my local area, which was uh, 
California. They had one. Oakland was the city qualifier that was closest to me. I went there. It was like three days. And the first day I, I, I was feeling pretty good. I, I got pretty good scores. And by the end, like everybody was watching me play because my scores were higher than everybody else. And by the time it got down to like like the top seven, I, I think I had like maybe the first or second uh, best score uh, in that city. And I didn't end up winning that city because uh, the the kid that did win had come from uh, his city where he had lost, which was Portland. Uh, he he beat me, but we, we became good friends afterwards. Uh, we have a lot of history. Uh, Robin Mahara uh, ended up winning Oakland, uh, but he had come from Portland where he had lost. Then uh, after I came in third in Oakland, I went to the next closest city, which was Los Angeles, and I ended up winning there. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I followed the same path, and uh, yeah, we uh, we ended up seeing each other again uh, at Universal Studios, and we became really good friends ever since. Oh, awesome! So, um, how did you do? Did you then kind of go to the, the, that escalate to the World Championship? Then did it from there? Yeah, how that was uh, the the Universal Studios was like the grand finals. Yeah, it, it was supposed to be in Florida, but they changed it to cheap out, I guess, and. <laughs> they figured it'd be cheaper to send everybody back to Universal Studios Hollywood where, where my yeah. preliminaries was. But I, I actually liked that I had won my my city championship at uh, Universal Studios because it was just like the movie The Wizard. Yeah. Uh, so I was actually, you know, the winner uh, of that. of that. If you follow the path, I followed the path and that's where it led me. Uh, and, uh, you know, Thor Ackerland ended up winning the whole thing for our, our division uh, there. He's also a really good friend of mine and, and ours and... Uh, um he you know he was head and shoulders up above everybody else in terms of skill on tetris especially um uh, but a great guy and um yeah he uh he innovated you know he used the controller in ways that nobody else did and even i look back at it now i'm like he definitely deserved to take the whole thing and i learned yeah. from it and that really yeah. served me going on on forward i might have not have won that whole nintendo championships but you know i i would uh, learn from that and be able to uh win one of my own uh, later on yeah well that was a uh, nice goes nicely into our next question so um we're fast forwarding a couple of years here so fill in the gaps if you need to but you won the sega and the sega sonic and knuckles rock the rock competition which you know is legendary. Like that was actually it was on TV and everything. Yeah, it? that's right. You know, so the, then it was, the, the, I, the Nintendo one was supposed to be that big, but yeah. they didn't put it up on TV like they were supposed to, and it, it just wasn't quite um, the spectacle that I think it really deserved to be. Uh, but Sega was at that point in 1994 winning the war against Nintendo, which was in the the concept in itself was crazy. It's just like Nintendo was so big at the time who could even challenge them. And uh, Sega was at the height of their popularity and success in 94. And they were able to uh, have this big worldwide competition, like a real world championships where they flew in people from Japan and France and Brazil and uh, just make it this really huge thing, get it on MTV broadcasted everywhere. Uh, so yeah, that was uh, uh, something I really wanted to do. I was really into Sega. I mean, my exposure to Sega was that back when I won the Nintendo Championship in Hawaii, they asked me what my favorite game was. And I said, Fantasy Star. And at that point, I had to explain to them what a Sega was because yeah. everybody only knew Nintendo at the time. And I'm like, no, my favorite game is on this other machine called the Sega Master System, and it's called Fantasy Star. So uh, it's just interesting that my very first esports endorsement 
was like for a game that wasn't even on the system that I won something for. And uh, you can find <laughs> that article, like I like there's scans of it where I, I talk about Fantasy Star when I won Nintendo competition. <laughs> and it's just kind of beautiful I, in a way uh, that, that it ended up that way. I've just got to ask, um, did you have the World Championship cart at all as well? Uh, yeah, at one point I did. And it was a prize that was uh, given to us. Uh, I think at the time uh, that I sold it, it probably went for the most that one had gone for. So... I don't regret it, but uh, mm. there comes a point in time where when you uh, you have something, it just becomes a liability if you just hold, keep holding on to it forever. Like it might get stolen or, you know, your your house might burn down or something. So I was just like, okay, it's time I, I need to. Um, yeah, but yeah, I did. And uh, I have a nice reproduction now, which is exactly, uh, I can play it whenever I want. But yeah, it was a really cool cartridge to have. Awesome. Um, you You also kind of, that that Sega competition, it was it was set up on Alcatraz, right? And, yeah, uh, they actually rented out the whole island. They put a whole bunch of uh, money into its redevelopment and restoration. So Sega was like a really big deal in uh, the Bay Area in California, and they they were doing things like that. Uh, so yeah, it was it was at that uh, Alcatraz Island, and they had like the prison cells and things like that. They filmed our footage in, and it was kind of dirty. It was kind of uh, bad i i thought that it was kind of unprofessional in retrospect uh but you know they they had to put on a show and uh they uh on that end definitely uh they they uh, did a good job for that and uh, how did you see it as kind of a revival of like esports and that kind of gaming because i know before they'd had lots of historical stuff with um you know pac-man and the and the older games but did you see that as a kind of you know, MTV and being on video, did it Did it seem like something new? Uh, it was just uh, on a scale and on a level that had never been before. Like, I, I had dreamed of being on Starcade. I mean, to me, that would have been just great just to, you know, be on a TV game show with arcade games. Like, that was my dream. But what they did with uh, Rock the Rock just completely far surpassed anything that came before it, you know, having it. Uh, be truly international for one thing and then to be have it be on tv uh, nintendo was supposed to but they didn't but you know sega was able to to uh to to pull that off so mm. uh, i had read about actually those old uh arcade game tournaments you know i'd have these uh winning at video games books and they would talk about you know the twin galaxy scoreboard and they'd, they'd talk about all these i don't know these early 80s arcade competitions and I would be like, well, how do I sign up? How do I how do I participate in these? But of course, by that time, since you know print media was really slow, there's like no way you could participate in something that's already been covered. Uh, so you re- really kind of had to be in on it from the ground floor and know about it as it was coming up. Uh, hmm. So yeah, when the Sega thing happened, they had they talked about it, you know, in their magazine. They talked about it, I think locally through the radio. So they they did a fairly decent job of pr- promoting it. And uh, when it came time, I, w- I was ready. And so this is where it gets a little bit, you know, I kind of need to hear it from from you to kind of figure out the uh, the history, I guess, the storyline. So, you know, at, at this point, I've heard on the internet and on certain videos, this is where you started kind of getting into the development side of games. But then also I've read that you started working at Tengen when you were just 14. So, you know, I, I don't know how old were you. Were you 14 at this time? Were you still really young? 13, or 14. You um, were 13, 14. Yeah. Wow. See, what actually happened was I was, uh, when I got sent down to Los Angeles, I wouldn't say sent, but by choice, 
yeah, after losing in Oakland, I had my mom drive me down to uh, Los Angeles for the Nintendo World Championships uh, to try to qualify there. After I'd won the city, well, I'd, I'd been hanging out with different people throughout the course of the weekend. I'd made friends, and one of the friends that I made, uh, his name is Mike Klug, definitely uh, someone who's been, you know, uh, a good guidance for me my entire life. I was just hanging out with him, and he was in the older age division. He was trying to uh, to qualify for that. Uh, and I was in uh, the middle age division, uh, the teens, and uh, we're just hanging out. And I found out that he was from the same area that I was, and we both had um, driven down to LA from the Bay Area. So that's why we hung out. We were like, oh, well, you're from that area. Well, I'm from that area too. Okay, well, let's hang out. And uh, little did I know, he was actually a, a gaming champion already. He he was already uh, had some record scores on pole position, pole position two. That was like his game of choice. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, but at the end of the weekend, uh, you know, after I'd won, uh, we were still hanging out and he handed me his business card and uh, it said Tengen. I'm like, oh my God, I know Tengen. You know, they, they made that version of Tetris set that they can't sell anymore. And I knew the yeah. whole history behind that just from reading the game magazines and uh, being so invested in the culture. Uh, so I was like, wow, what that, that blew me away. And he said, yeah, you should uh, come come uh, hang out with us uh, at work and come check out the office and stuff like that. So uh, I was still a week or two after my preliminaries and I was already visiting uh, the Tengen office. And I was so young that I wasn't old enough to get a work permit yet. So they okay. paid me out of pocket. Like, oh, wow. Until I was old enough to get a work permit, which didn't take long. But, you know, it was, you know, that that to me just blew me away. I and the funny thing is I'd already been working as a kid because after i won the hawaii championships the local game store there which uh, most people might know as uh, it was uh, called toys and joys uh, which is like an online place it's not around anymore but uh in the 90s and, or in the 2000s it was like this big you know gaming and uh kind of like um pop culture retailer uh, i worked there right after i won the hawaii championships because of now, the child labor laws in Hawaii were super lax, so you could be like 10 years old and <laughs> work at a store. So I was 10 years old working at a store, uh, working at a game store. So uh, that, that was a cool experience. So, uh, you know, working at a game company, though, was really the dream that I had, you know, like after I got through, you know, high school or whatever. That's what I was planning to do. But here I was already doing that way prior to that. And they were paying me out of pocket. I was doing odd jobs around the office, um, primarily stuff like testing and game counseling. I'd answer the phones and uh, I'd read about, you know, game counselors and Nintendo power. I always wanted to be one. So through that, I was kind of doing that job. Uh, I did things like write manuals. I wrote the manuals for Rampart and Gauntlet 4. And I did some actual design concepts for Gauntlet 4 that got into the game. Uh, it got, geez, it got all these new modes in it. And one of them was this RPG mode that I really felt the game should have because I didn't think an arcade port of Gauntlet would fly in the mid nineties since it was like an 86 arcade game. So I was like, okay, well there's other games like dungeon Explorer on the turbo graphics. Like you need to make a more robust quest. You know, people want more RPG elements. The player should be able to level up and buy things and things like that. And uh, in order to green light the game in order to, you know, get it uh, so that people would buy it in the U S I really felt these elements needed to happen. And uh, the developer for that, like, I didn't know this at the time to me, I thought that there's this, you know, Tengen Japan office and Tengen Japan, could do whatever they wanted i didn't know that at the time there were these huge limitations and everything you know had like a time and a budget and it was highly unlikely that any of this stuff would get done but m2 this was like their first uh project and their first chance to prove themselves so they 
those mad lads did it. Like they actually went and put the RPG mode in the game. So that to me was like one of the things that I felt was a highlight of, of me working on games that in, in those early days. And they were a subdivision of Atari, weren't they? So, yes. So uh, uh, the politics behind it, at one time, Atari CoinOp and Atari uh, Consumer, who made the computers and consoles, were the same company. But they, um, when Warner, I think, got involved, they split the two off. And the Atari that I worked for was Atari Games Corporation, who made the arcade games. So when they wanted to make home games for platforms like Nintendo, they kind of had to make another brand that wasn't Atari. So Tengen was that home brand that they were able to make their arcade games based off of and, and publish other things. It became really big, prolific publisher of like a lot of different stuff just besides the arcade games. Because at the time, I mean, now that I look at the business dynamic and you look at how publishers operate back then, they're one of the very few companies that people would you know want to send their stuff to to maybe get on a system. I know we had, uh, I know you, you guys over in Europe uh, had Domark and we had a partnership with them. So we published a lot of their stuff and a lot of their stuff would, would come through my hands and, uh, you know, would, would do uh, evaluations and reports on. I, I was going to ask about that. Like, um, did you then have much exposure to the kind of European gaming scene? And uh, uh, Yes, I did. What, what did you think about it? I was actually very interested in it. So for one thing, I have found out that in certain parts of Europe, uh, the Master System won. And then NES was the system that actually got uh, left behind in a, in a lot yeah. of cases. So uh, we would get things. You'd have stuff like Super Space Invaders and Paperboy 2 and the Master System come in through our office. And I'd, I'd have to play them and some of them were really terrible. But, you know, we, I'd see that stuff and I'm like, wait, they're still making stuff for the Master System over there. That, you know, how, uh, how interesting is that? So, yeah, I was uh, kind of uh, interested in and a lot of the people in the company, in the department that I worked in, I worked in sort of like the consumer product development division. We had a lot of people who loved just quirky, obscure stuff. We all loved imports. But I think the thing that struck out to me was there was like the Amiga and apparently the Amiga in Europe was like the dominant platform. And they had, to, to me, it was alien to me, but they had console quality games on a computer because you know, over on our side of the uh, the ocean, you know, we had like MS DOS PCs, and the games on it were like four colors. Like the games did not look good, and they did not play good. But here, I had I'd go over to my friend's house, and he'd have an Amiga with all these cracked games, and I was playing like some Euro made version of Afterburner that looked fairly like the arcade version, and they, you know, they'd show me things like uh, I think Turrican was like it's like. To me, it kind of looked like Metroid. I'm like, whoa, this looks really cool. It's really colorful. It's got all these kind of like a different feel. Um, there are a lot of um, different stuff like Shadow of the Beast they were they were showing off to me. Things that were popular in Europe that I hadn't been exposed to since they hadn't been uh, released on console in, in, our, uh, in our region. So I had an exposure to the European stuff. They actually had a special setup for the PAL stuff since it ran on, you know, most people know is, you know, different... Uh, electric systems and different video uh, standards. So uh, there would be like a special setup for that stuff. And it's like the stuff would run slower and it would look really bad under fluorescent lights. So yeah, I knew about all that stuff. And uh, you know, kind of like being in the industry, uh, you're, you're forced, to, forced to be exposed to it. And it was very fascinating to me. Now I've got to ask, it could be going off topic here. We're in 1995-ish at the moment. What, what's the story, your side of things for Primal Rage 2? Because obviously 
this game has gone down in history as essentially a lost game by midway. And obviously it has popped up a couple of times in arcades. You know, I think there's a couple floating out there, but you mentioned to us pre-show that that you worked, you had a little bit of a hand in that. What's the story there? Yeah, I was actually the game designer on that project. Um, I oh, wow. worked on Primal Rage 1. And, okay, uh, yeah. It's sort of, uh, on Primal Rage 1, I was in the transition. I was like kind of going back and forth between um, the, the arcade division and the home division. I still worked for Tengen. I was working on things like Gauntlet 4 and uh, still doing kind of like my product development consultant basically was my title. So I do a little bit of everything and they still wanted me working over there. So I'd split my day between what I did in consumer and then I'd go over to the arcade side. Actually, the first arcade game I worked at Atari was another fighting game that got canceled uh, called Cyberstorm. And uh, that one was like a fighting game with robots. It it wasn't very good. And um, one thing... So when Street Fighter 2 took off, like everybody wanted to make a fighting game. Everybody who made arcade games would make their own Street Fighter ripoff. Uh, but it was hard to do. And uh, people at Atari, people at other companies didn't know what made a good fighting game. They didn't know how they worked. They didn't know what a combo was. But I knew all that stuff since I was just so invested in the games. And uh, I was already winning. I was actually in the very first Street Fighter 2 tournament ever held, you know, endorsed by oh, yeah. Capcom. Uh, Capcom actually tested their games at my local arcade, which is Sunnyvale Golfland, you know, legendary arcade. Uh, that was like, you know, where the very first like Evo ancestor was held was at Sunnyvale Golf. And that was my local arcade. They got everything, you know, test uh, units and things like that. Uh, Atari tested there, Capcom tested there. Uh, and then there is a secret 7-Eleven, you know, it's like a convenience store that they also did, uh, Capcom did their test games at, and that's actually where I played Street Fighter 2, and I got really good at the game. So I'd go, I'd go, I'd go to Golfland, and I'd just, like, destroy everyone on Golfland. I'd be like, <laughs> how's this guy get so good? And I'd just be like, well, I, I play at 7-Eleven, actually. But, uh, so anyway, that that's the background to me being, like, sort of like a fighting game expert as well. Uh, I won third place at the very first Street Fighter 2 tournament ever held at Sunnyvale Golfland. It was, like, this really cool trophy I got from it, too. I think it's still the coolest trophy I have. It's of this, uh, they just got a karate trophy and it puts the you know, Street Fighter 2 championship on it. I was just like, that's awesome. <laughs> they didn't have that's any cool. merchandise of Ryu at the time. You know, nobody knew who those characters were, but they got a karate dude on it. And that's all that matters. Uh, so uh, I got to become an advisor for these fighting games at Atari, uh, first starting with Cyberstorm. And there was another project that started a little bit later called T-Rex. And it was a little bit different from what you might know as Primal Rage. Like the characters weren't as colorful. Um, but, uh, the programmer on it, uh, you know, showed me the game and I guess we would, um, we would play fighting games. Like, uh, we had like a game room that had different games in it. And since he was working on T-Rex and I was working on Cyberstorm, we'd go back there and I'd kick his ass and, and then he'd get mad at me and, and, uh, <laughs> call me cheap and all that. But he said, Oh, you should check out, you know, our game. And eventually, uh, after Cyberstorm folded, then they just kind of absorbed me onto there. And I was still kind of like running between, consumer and arcade but eventually i went full-time and then on primal rage one i was the one who was like programming like the ai set for the characters and doing hit boxes and and collisions and tuning the gameplay and uh, making sure the game played well combos things like that were all uh fun unfortunately a lot of the uh, disagreements i had with the team like i didn't like the special move input system but for some reason, I, uh, the, I, the I was li- I was literally about to say, is is it because you were so good at fighting games? That's why you made the combo so hard. <laughs> no, uh, I, I knew that 
they are hard, but I could do, you know, I could do the biggest combo in the game, like no problem. But I also recognize that, you know, people coming up to the game, playing it for the first time, need to be able to like do special moves. And the way that they implemented them where you hold down buttons and then have to wiggle the joystick, it was not conducive to the standards of the time. You know, people who play Street Fighter are going to try to do things a certain way just because that's how games were evolving. That's that was yeah. the standard at the time. And they didn't get that you needed to have things uh, follow a certain standard. They, they felt that being unique was more important at the time. You know, they they kept uh, insisting that the, the special moves be that way. And I was just like, oh, man, that's actually going to affect the success of the game going forward. And it did. And it wasn't until uh, the game went on test in Japan and it completely bombed that they, uh, you know, nobody could find special moves. So uh, that they made a version of the game that allowed for standard special move inputs. And thankfully, that's what they went with for Primal Rage 2 as well. So from Primal Rage 1 to Primal Rage 2, what kind of happened there? So yeah, there's a lot um, that went into it, but originally we were going to make an update to Primal Rage 1 that was supposed to include a boss character and maybe uh, you have some more balancing changes and things like that. But as uh, the industry was moving forward uh, and games like Killer Instinct were starting to come out, uh, it looked like, okay, well, instead of putting all that effort into just an update, why not put that boss into a full-fledged sequel? Because at that time, Primal Rage was like the best-selling arcade game of 94. And we had merchandising, we had like a toy line and all this uh, stuff for it. You know, all these different home versions were planned, you know, a dozen conversions on... Like, we, I don't think we ever had a game uh, through Tengen slash Time Warner that had that many SKUs. I think still to this day, Primal Rage is probably the, uh, the most ported uh, of the... I guess contemporary, you know, not like a classic game like Paperboy, but like something that we brought out during its time that was released at, at you know, like a year it, after. It, yeah, it was on like every 16 bit and every 32 bit. And then, you know, I think it was on, was it on the Game Boy as well? It was on yeah, everything. Unfortunately, it? it was on the Game Boy and the Game Year. Yeah. It was on the Tiger R zone. And I don't think any other <laughs> Atari game can even lay claim to that, uh, that uh, honor. So, gonna make an update and we decided to go for a full-fledged sequel but there's a lot of politics involved like they wanted to throw us onto the kojag hardware which is like a coin op jaguar hardware because it was like free or something so they were trying to put us on this really bad hardware and and the jaguar was actually worse than the primal rage one arcade hardware and when we we tried porting to it and it was just so bad it was like we couldn't even make it look as good as part one so they were just like, no, we, we cannot be on this. And uh, it was really demoralizing to the team to have to like put, you know, a game that was considered to be good on this really bad hardware. Uh, but eventually other hardwares became a thing. I think we tested the Titan for a while. So we thought we were going to go to Titan, but then everybody said, oh man, that thing is so terrible to develop for. I, I remember, uh, so I was still going back and forth between consumer and arcade. And I remember the programmer, our lead programmer, back on um, Saturn Virtual Racing. At the start of the pro- project, he was happy. And at the end, he looked like a zombie. He was just like, it took everything out of the guy. I'm just like, man, dude, yeah. what happened to you? Uh, it's funny because my contribution to that Virtual Racing game was I think I provided the soundtrack because I, I collected game soundtracks and I had all the CDs and they didn't have uh, the Virtual Racing soundtrack, but I did. So I just let them borrow it and they just ripped it and they, <laughs> they put it on the, 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 the Tengen Time Warner version. I'm just like, oh, cool. I'm having 
having uh, that uh, virtual racing and Outrunners uh, soundtracks uh, really, uh, really did some good. Uh, but yeah, that's just a side note. So yeah, Saturn was not a good platform to go to, but eventually the arcade PSX hardware became an option and it was able to do a lot of the different things that we needed to do. We knew we needed to have a lot of animation frames. So our hardware wizards like built a hard drive interface that would allow it to, I mean, we didn't even have the term for streaming back then, but we were streaming animation frames off of the hard drive or streaming the backgrounds of the music. And we were doing all sorts of technological things with Primal Rage 2 that no other game was doing. It was so far ahead of its time. And maybe that was a bad thing because you couldn't make a home port of something that was that advanced. So uh, in one way, we were like actually bringing an experience that no one else could replicate. Like not even Killer Instinct would have the amount of frames of animation uh, that we could have since you know we had the tech to stream off the hard drive. And we had the production facilities to make all these stop motion animations that were really elaborate. Uh, but that also extended our production time to like an insane length. And it took like seven, nine months, I think, for me to get frames from an animated puppet onto the game program itself because uh, the graphics all had to be processed and cleaned up. And that was just a huge process in itself. So our uh, ship date and the fact that we couldn't have a vertical slice demonstrable for our product really hurt the project and hurt his chances for uh, release. And I think the worst thing was that uh, Midway ended up buying Atari games from Time Warner. And since they own Mortal Kombat, it was redundant with their own product line. And after you know they had reductions in force and layoffs and other bad stuff happened to the company, uh, it mm-hmm. just uh, created a very negative uh, energy that led to the game's cancellation. It's such a sad story you know really in the grand schemes of things but it's interesting that you know they did actually get a couple made and they they kind of ended up out in the wild Um, i'm assuming they were test units or yeah they were test units i think um our game was canceled even before like the version out in the wild was supposed to be see how this game does and then make the choice based on that but i had i think i remember when i was doing uh presentation for gdc i actually went into the emails and i looked at the dates and stuff like that and and i think we were canceled before that version even got out into the wild so it's really sad because i don't think we had a chance no matter how well we did no matter how poorly or well or uh excited people would be to play that game there's nothing that we could do and i never would know how i didn't think that i would ever know what it would be like to see people play that version of the game and be excited for it but I ended up actually being able to get to see that because when the Galloping Ghost Arcade got the machine, they went and streamed the first days that they had of it uh, on Twitch, like 24-7. They would they'd just have like a pro gamer on that thing trying to find out all the moves and the fatalities and things like that. In the year 2014, which is geez, like 17 years, almost 20 years later, discovering all the secrets in that game that they could for the first time. And I, I got to see that that live thanks to you know the the technology of the time and you know uh, most games that are out there had an faq they had move lists they had youtube videos and playthroughs but primal rage 2 didn't because it hadn't been emulated it was uh too too quirky too the hardware was too weird all the hard drive stuff and i guess it had some protection to the code that uh her programmers like ming told me about it later that yeah i had written some traps and things like that into the code so people couldn't reverse engineer it and i'm like well <laughs> 
that made it so people couldn't emulate it. And that's why it was a lost game for so long, because people just couldn't play it in that era of emulation where, you know, even if something was canceled, if there were games out in the wild, you'd see emulation of it, but not for Primal Rage 2, not until 2017, which was after the Galloping Ghost Arcade had it. So uh, it's fairly recent. And, you know, it made these big news headlines in 2017. And uh, that, that to me, like, uh, was really vindicating to, to see people enjoy the game on a level that uh, it really deserved to be. Yeah, 100%. It, it was, I guess, it's a sad story, but a nice end that the fan base you know managed yeah. to get a hold of it and you know first of all stream it like that in 2014 and then take it apart and <laughs> get the emulation out of it in 2017 so it was a nice a nice end to the story yeah also you know while i was developing it and uh when it was going out on test i thought people hated it i thought it was you know maybe uh we didn't do well enough but after seeing people talk about it getting to play it and plus seeing people discuss it using modern fighting game terms and then them saying that, you know, it's solid, it's good. Why isn't this the fan game at Evo and things like that? I'm like, wow, that, you know, no no better honor. I think Engadget said it was like 2017's hottest new fighting game. And I was just like blown away by the love that the game was getting after so many years. That's awesome. Like, yeah, really good to see. And uh, it's on MAME at the moment, isn't it? Uh, yeah, they have a it. special version, uh, MAME for Age 2, developed by Grenzel94 is the version. And I think uh, there, you know, there are people in the community who uh, are actually doing ROM patches to, to fix some of the things. Like, I think Talon's slide was one of the things that I said, like, yeah, it wasn't like that when we left the lab, but the lab version hasn't been found yet. So on a computer, on a hard drive, on some discs out there, there is a more finished version of the game that's even out there now. Uh, because I remember I was working on the game for a couple of months after that version was made uh, until they mothballed it. And I wanted to make sure my last fixes got it into the game. So... Hopefully that version will be found someday. Well, another amazing title that you worked on uh, was Marvel vs. Capcom. And I, I used to go into uh, the arcades and just the selection of characters on there and the animation was absolutely awesome. What what was it like working on that project? Yeah, Marvel vs. Capcom was you know basically the, I guess, the de facto uh, successor. Uh, X-Men vs. Street Fighter is what it started with. But then Marvel vs. Capcom was the chance for us to, you know, see characters like Mega Man and Captain Commando and Strider hear you to really uh, get their time in the spotlight. And uh, I, I would say it was the most exciting thing for me, uh, especially like I think Strider was like one of my favorite game characters of all time. And uh, I, I didn't get to. So, you know, at Atari, I did, you know, things like, you know, the hitboxes and the timings and things uh, on a very... How detailed level of the game I was I was involved in, but uh, for Capcom I did things more on a sort of like a, a system level. So I would design like a special move system, or I would design like like something like uh, you know like the street in Street Fighter Three, like you know how you do taunts and different things happen. Like I would come up with things like that, or uh, the EX moves system where you push two buttons and you have more invincibility frames and things like that. So I would you know come up with things like that. I'd come up with uh, like titles for the games, like uh, I came up with like Tech Romancer and a, couple, a few others. It wasn't as, you know, I really kind of wanted to get in there and do hitboxes and timings and things like that again. Uh, but uh, Marvel's Capcom, I think the, the most fun thing I did was I got to do all the writing for the characters. So Strider Hiryu in particular, I went back into the NES game and I played through it. I recorded it. I saw every single line in the game and I made sure that, you know, he was written like like the character that, that everybody envisioned him to be. Uh, so that, that was really fun. I think 
in the years that were to follow, someone like would make like a Strider. Uh, they were like a really big fan of Strider and they made this web page and they said, these are the words that I live by. And it was basically everything I wrote like for, for Strider. And it was just like, wow, that, that, that was, that was like, you know, no better honor, but to have people live by the words that you wrote. And uh, uh, that, that was a lot of fun uh, for Marvel versus Capcom. And uh, that's MVC one is probably between that and turbo hyper fighting are like my two favorite uh, fighting games of all time. Yeah. I, I think for me, Marvel versus Capcom two probably edges it out. Um, I think I just think the roster on that is incredible. But did you expect, you know, Marvel versus Capcom one to just become so big and become such a classic? Because of, you know, here in the UK, um, me and Ravi were joking about it before that, like the, the older boys would go play Marvel versus Capcom at our local all, arcade. All the cool guys, all the cool yeah. guys would go play it. You know, that was like the cool game to go play at our local arcade. It was such a big game. Well, it's uh got a different vibe than Street Fighter. Like Street Fighter is like you know single hits, big damage. But um, mm. Marvel vs. Capcom, X vs. Street Fighter, that whole series, it's like get massive, you know, numbers racking up on your combo, do these big combos, air juggles, and it was really flashy. So yeah, when you when you watch the game, like even if you don't know anything about fighting games, it's just so dynamic to watch everything happen. And mm. uh, I, I think it was like a natural progression from a fighting game. But I think both types, both styles of games have their place. I think it's nice to, you know, for me, Marvel vs. Capcom, it's such a good game to pick up and just, like you say, looks fantastical. And even if you're not very good at fighting games, you're, you're smashing out these big 50-hit combos from just putting bashing and hitting them all together. Whereas, if you know, Street Fighter 2, like you say, there's a place for that as well, where you can do, you know, a lot more damage with just a couple of punches and kicks. Um, but that leads nicely on to, you also worked on Street Fighter Third Strike. Was Was that like a big deal for you? Was it kind of scary finally following up on one of the biggest games of all time, you know, with the Street Fighter 2 series. How did yeah, it feel? so I was, you know, a really big fan of Capcom. Even when I was working on Primal Rage, it was just like, the reason I got that job was because I was really big into Street Fighter 2. I'd been, in, I was a tournament winning player at the time and I was just so invested in it. And, and Capcom to me was like my dream. I I just wanted to be involved in that. I wanted to uh, work there uh, someday, even though, I, I felt like I'd probably be stuck at Atari forever because, you know, the, the stuff that they made for Capcom that was popular, you know, it was all made in Japan. So it's just like, what hope did I have? You know, the U.S. office just brought stuff out over here kind of like as a publisher, but the actual development was done in Japan. But when I actually ended up being involved in Capcom, I worked for Capcom Japan. I reported to uh, Yoshiki Okamoto and uh, Tom Shiraiwa, and uh, we worked, you know, reporting to the Osaka office, which is really... It, it, it was an interesting relationship because it wasn't like um, reporting to the Capcom Sunnyvale office. I pretty much just kind of went there for administrative things. But day to day, the stuff that I worked on got put into the games that were being developed in Japan. And that to me was was huge. And I think the first games that I think I did things on were like Pocket Fighter was was the first thing I, I had stuff in. Like we had to come up with like these... Uh, these quiz questions and answers. And uh, I was able to put some like fighting game references in there and then things like that. So that was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, Street Fighter was like the big one. And I remember even prior, I think like one of the first things that um, I was privy to is I, I got to see the character designs for Street Fighter 3 before anyone had seen them. And I was like, I don't know, man. Oro, Necro, I'm not liking these guys. Mm. These, these guys look like freaks. I, I don't know <laughs> if this is going to be popular. So... I was excited to work on Street Fighter, but I 
how I, I didn't have faith in the character designs mm-hmm. as they were coming across from Japan. And uh, sure enough, uh, when when Street Fighter Three hit, it was not the instant success that Street Fighter Two was. It, it, didn't it was have a sleeper, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I know eventually, you know, it did catch on, but it wasn't until those games were actually out of production and they, no one was making fighting games anymore that Street Fighter Three Third Strike got really popular. But at the time I was working on them, you know, I I did the best I could. I think some of my best writing is is in Street Fighter Three in that series. And uh, I, I came up with some systems like the EX special moves and things like that. I I thought were pretty good. Uh, but to me as a player, kind of uh, the speed and the dynamic that I enjoyed in games like Turbo Hyper Fighting, it was different in Street Fighter 3. Like there's more of a focus on parrying. And I was good at the game. I, you know, I enjoyed it and, you know, I, I was competitive at it. But I just liked Street Fighter 2 better. I liked Marvel vs. Capcom better. And uh, there's a certain appreciation you can get for Street Fighter 3, but that level of depth where you can get to appreciate it, you really have to have, you have to be surrounded by other good players to appreciate that that depth of competition. I think uh, even for its time and even even up till now, like it's something that uh, you have to be a little bit too invested in it to appreciate it. Uh, so I think like I respect Street Fighter 3 for the design and for what it is, uh, but it's it's just just over that line of like where it could have been, you know, wildly successful had it gone down a different path. And I think a lot of it started from uh, the characters just not being marketable, uh, not having as appealing characters as at the time, like, you know, SNK was having these characters, you know, be really just kind of cool looking, you know, like they'd be wearing these fashionable outfits and, and, uh, you know, when cosplay started becoming a thing, everybody was doing the SNK characters, you know, but the Capcom characters were, you know, these freaks. It's like, you don't go to a convention and see someone cosplaying as, you know, Oro or 12 or any of these, like... <laughs> any of these mad characters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah no, I know. I, I, popularity. So uh, I might not, you know, have... Uh, said this too much in pre- in previous interviews but you you're hearing at first i i actually kind of i was excited to work on street fighter as a brand but in terms of what street fighter 3 was i i knew it had a lot going against it and we did the best we could uh luckily you know, i was also working on alpha 3 at the same time and alpha 3 was was just fine so you know, it had you know the characters and, and things that that people still came to expect for the most part i, I still like alpha 2 better but you know that's just me. <laughs> and how did you, just to backpedal a little bit, how did you kind of get involved in Capcom? Because you said, you know, Capcom was like, you were worried you were going to be stuck at Atari. And it's like Capcom is, you know, they're, they're, especially in the 90s, they were, they were the, the fighting guys. They were the fighting games guys. You know, they were the go-to fighters. How did that come about? How did you, you know, get the job there? Okay, so there is, Jesus, uh, in the 90s, late 90s, uh, there was kind of like these, fighting game or there's these like competitive gamer slash magazine writer slash I work at a game company types and we do all three and we kind of like each discipline would kind of be blissfully unaware but aware that we had these skills so you had people who would you know write a game pro who would work at Capcom and then enter contests and then I'd be the guy that I'd work at Atari and I would I, there are a few, a few magazines that I would contribute to and and you know, win the big Sega tournament. And we would show up to places like CES and E3 and we'd all hang out and things like that. And you know, would make friends. And uh, one of my biggest friends, uh, Eric Suzuki, ended up, uh, I got him a job at uh, Tengen 
working on some fighting game that got, you know, obviously got canceled. And then he ended up going to Capcom and being sort of like uh, one of the main guys to uh, help bring the Japanese games out into the U.S. And we worked together at, uh, we're not really together on the same project, but we're in the same building uh, at Atari Tengen. He went over to Capcom. And then when Primal Rage 2 got canceled, it just seemed like the natural thing. It's just like, well, Primal Rage 2 is not coming out. What do I do? I think I'm going to work on Street Fighter 3. So that really helped me kind of put that experience of having a game canceled behind me because I knew I was going to be working on, you know, really polished, really good games uh, from from that point forward uh, working at Capcom. So I had that kind of lined up, you know, at on the last days I knew I was leaving Atari. I knew I knew who I was coming. I was just like, all right, I get to work on some really cool stuff. And uh, I was super excited about it, especially knowing that I'd be reporting to Capcom Japan was was really huge because I didn't think that was possible. And ironically, so our department at Capcom, we were actually uh, replacing there are a couple other guys that uh, I was alluding to in this sort of circle of like, you know, would show up at CES and and uh, E3 and we'd go to the arcade afterwards and all beat each other up at the arcade afterwards. Uh, so uh, James Goddard to Dave Winstead were at Capcom doing that job. And they had been the, you know, sort of like consultants on Street Fighter 2 series. They actually mm. went over to Atari to work oh, wow. on another fighting game that got canceled <laughs> uh, for several years called 10th Degree. Mm. Uh, while uh, Eric and I went over to Capcom and uh, we started doing what they used to do. So, uh, you know, in terms of being, you know, design support and uh, localization and uh, contributing to a lot of the Capcom games uh, from from the Western perspective uh, that got implemented into the Japanese product. Actually working on a new title at the moment, aren't you? Uh, Strike Plazinger. Could you tell us more about that? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, after being in the industry so long, eventually you just want to make the games that you just want to make. Like, especially if you have indie capabilities now with great engines like Unity and Unreal and the tools being available one thing, so we just started talking about, or we just finished talking about Capcom, but while we were there, something really struck out at me when, uh, you know, Eric and I were, would talk to people, legendary people like Yoshiki Okamoto. They'd say like, why are you working at Capcom? You should be out there making your own games, making your own mark out there. And they, they would actually bring this question to us. And at the time, you know, we were young and we, we loved Capcom and that was our dream. We wanted to work on Street Fighter, you know, we wanted to work on Capcom games. But eventually, you come to a point where you just want to make something that excites you. And Strike Blazinger uh, is kind of like the culmination of that. So the guy that got me into Capcom, Eric, uh, you know, he's our producer. And uh, another friend uh, who was ex-Atari and myself were the leads on this thing. And, you know, we're trying to make the games that we really want to have come into reality. And we're really big fans of Sega and I, I love games like Space Harrier and Fantasy Star. So uh, when I, you know, the elevator pitch is like, you know, it's kind of like a spiritual successor to Space Harrier and Fantasy Star and all these kind of like cool techie sci-fi things that Sega just kind of doesn't make anymore with the bright colors and sort of new futurism that uh, that was popular in the mid 80s. And uh, uh, we uh, made a prototype and we took it to various conventions and it became a really big sensation everybody that played it really loved it and then we started to realize i mean the reason why it's not out yet is because we realized we had to make the game a lot better than we originally thought we had to uh because mm. the potential it, it was so good and so fun it's just like we can't bang this out 
uh, in a year like we thought we would. We're going to need more resources. We're going to need, you know, realize the dream of hundreds of levels. And, you know, when we, uh, I guess uh, our producer said, you know, put two-player implementation into the game. And it's just like when you take a single-player game and you turn it into a two-player game, you start to have to do things like, you know, tabulation for collisions and score. And everything is for everything in the game is now applied to two players instead of one. So it's really complicated. But anyway... I digress. So the project became a bigger thing than we thought it would be. So um, now we started to have to sort of restructure our studio and our games so that we could ship multiple games, smaller projects leading up to the bigger release. That's amazing. And unfortunately, we are the retro hour and we're coming up to about an hour and 10, 20 minutes now. Joe's like, I wanted to do two hours. Honestly, (laughs) Ravi was like, we're going to have to wrap it up. But this has been absolutely amazing, Chris. And I'm going to ask you now, will you be able to come on again in the future and talk all about esports and Tetris with us because of... Oh my gosh, right. I I, didn't even get to do a boom Tetris for Ravi yet. I know, I know. (laughs) And I'm just like... We've got like 20 years of esports to still talk about, but we've we've ended up covering, I think, a lot of your competitive uh, Yeah, the competitive stories and the... And, um, and a lot of the development and game development stuff. So I would be absolutely honoured and love if you could come back and talk to us about your esports career. Yeah, it sounds mo- good. I, I, I'm, I'll be looking forward to it. And it's just, uh, I'm honoured that there's enough stuff to talk about uh, to, to fill not just absolutely. your podcast, but perhaps many more going on into the future yeah no absolutely you know sometimes we worry people go oh it's because they've run out of guests they're getting they've revisited somebody a year later or six months later but it is not the case whatsoever it is <laughs> you're gonna have to is, change the name of your podcast to the retro hours <laughs> yeah the retro world. hours at this rate but this has been absolutely amazing chris um absolutely loved it but an absolute honor to have you come back on and you know say touch us for joe touch us for ravi uh, Boom Tetris for Joe. Boom Tetris for Ravi. Yeah, <laughs> oh. let's do that next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Love it. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a that joy and an honor, and uh, looking forward to it. And see you all next time. Bye.